Hi, family. Hi, kids. It's good to see you guys virtually. The last few weeks, Pastor Nate and the leaders here at Emmaus have been talking about after the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And you know there were hundreds of them, literally hundreds of them. And Jesus each time would say, come and see, come and see. He said that to Thomas. He said, you're having trouble with believing that I'm real? Come and see. Come and feel, come and touch. He said that to Mary after his resurrection right at the beginning. Come and see. Well, now... It's been almost 40 days that he's made these appearances. And he's saying now to his disciples and to those that are followers of him, he's saying now go and make disciples. Because you've already come and you've seen, you've experienced me and a life with me. Now go. Go and tell others. Now, if you guys are quarantined at home, it's kind of hard to go out and do that. But there are different ways that you can make disciples. And one way is that you live it. In fact, that's the most powerful way is to live it. I want to encourage you during this time when Pastor Nate is talking to get a piece of paper and draw a beautiful drawing similar to this. And then as he's talking about the different ways that a disciple lives, that you write those attributes down inside your drawing. And you know these, like kindness. Now, the tough thing, though, is to be kind to brothers and sisters at home. It's easy to be kind to others at school or people who are kind to you. But your mission, when he's asking you to make, go and make disciples, is that you live it in your home. So maybe you show kindness to your brothers and sisters, not play tic-tac-toe on their faces. Maybe you help mom and dad by clearing the dishes or taking out the trash. But all of those attributes go into being a disciple. And when you live it, it's the most powerful way to go and make. So that's your challenge today. It's to go. All right. Well, good morning. I want to start with a question for you. I want to invite you to turn to those that you're sitting with this morning and ask this very profound question. Here's the question. How do you like your eggs? How do you like your eggs. Turn to those that you're with. If you're watching in, um, in your house by yourself this morning, go ahead and text somebody you're looking forward to having breakfast with at some point. Tell them, this is how I like my eggs. Question is, how do you prefer your eggs? Go ahead. Take a minute and talk about that. <clears throat> All right. Huevos enteros. That's, that's, that's the best thing to say in Spanish. Dos huevos enteros, por favor. Two eggs over easy. That's how I like my eggs. Okay, now everybody knows it. We are all settled on that. Hey, we're finishing our Easter series. It's called What Now? It's the final time. Today we're going to look at the final time that Jesus appears to his disciples. Apparently, it's at least one of the final times that he appears to them. It's probably the last time his disciples see him 
physically in their lifetime. All right, this is recorded by Matthew in his gospel. This is the first gospel of the New Testament, the last chapter, Matthew chapter 28. Matthew's one of Jesus' disciples, an eyewitness to much of the ministry of Christ. And this is how he wraps up his story of the life and teachings of Jesus by telling you this story beginning in chapter 28, verse 16. I'll read it to you. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Interesting note here. There's two words for doubt in the New Testament. One doubt is the kind of doubt that Jesus addresses in Thomas. When he says, essentially, stop not believing and believe. That's one kind of doubt, the lack of belief. What Jesus essentially says to Thomas in an earlier story is stop not believing and start believing. That's not the kind of doubt, the word here, that's used. What, what the word that's used here is a different word that means it, the word comes from this Greek duo or double um, it, we might say that they were wavering in their faith. They had kind of two ways of thinking. They were double-minded. So the, the, the sense is that they see Jesus as they come up to the mountain. There they see him. There he is. We haven't seen him for a couple, but there he is again. He's risen from the dead. Some worship him, but some they're just not sure. So they doubt. They've got this double thing happening. Verse 18, then Jesus came to them and said, all Authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All, not some, not partial, not occasional. All authority where? In heaven and on earth. It's been given to me. Therefore, in other words, in light of this or because of this, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then Jesus says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So this is not only just one of, if not the last time that Jesus appears to his disciples. These are the final words of instruction Jesus gives to his disciples. What does Jesus tell them to do? What does Jesus tell us by extension to do? Well, in summary, it's go make disciples. That's, the, that's his last word of instruction. Go make disciples. Somebody asked me this week, what does it mean to make disciples? I understand make a loaf of bread. I understand make a bowl of cereal. What do make, here's what it means to make disciples. To be on the teaching end of the learning, teaching, to follow Jesus journey. Right? Just to be on the teaching end, as, as Julie said, to show with our life the way it is to live and to, to follow Jesus. Jesus tells those who are currently following him, Jesus tells those who are currently learning from him now to go everywhere, teach everyone everything that he has commanded. To make disciples is to teach and to show people how to live for Jesus. That's what it means. And this is the commission that Jesus gives to his disciples. This word, in fact, this instruction is known as the Great Commission. This is like the final marching orders. This is the job description. These are the words of instruction. What we as followers of Jesus are told to do, we are given a commission. We are like commissioned officers. What's our commission? Go make disciples. Have you ever been given a job and then suddenly the situation changes? 
Like you were given a job to do, and then the context in which the job's supposed to happen just, just flips all of a sudden. Once I was in high school, I was uh, cutting down trees. I would work with this guy. We'd cut down trees together, stack oak, and that kind of thing. So I'd worked with this guy before several times. He gives me a call. He says, hey, there's this tree we need to drop. Are you available? Would you come work? I said, absolutely, I would. So I show up with my chainsaw. My friend is there, and he says, okay, we want to drop the tree in this direction. We want to stack the wood over there. And then he left. And that's the part that surprised me, right? That's the part I wasn't expecting. That was, that was the surprise to me. It was, it, was, it was his departure that surprised me. When he was explaining the job, I was listening, but I was also assuming that he would be right there with me the whole time because that's the way it had always been. That's the only way I could imagine working with him because that's the only way we'd ever done it before. Cutting down a really big tree sounds like fun, Cutting down a really big tree by myself sounded overwhelming to me. I was a little bit frightened as, I, as he drove away, and I'm like, oh, this is on me now. Right? Jesus gives his followers this job description, and then the very next thing that happens, and we'll talk about this more next week, is Jesus ascends into heaven. The disciples, think about this. I know these are the last words that Jesus speaks to his disciples. They don't know these are his last words. Until he, until he speaks them and then leaves and then departs, at least physically. He assures them, I'm going to be with you always to the very end of the age, and yet physically he is not present anymore. In an instant, the focal point of their mission, the focal point of their entire lives is gone, right? In an instant. It's only natural to imagine that things will continue as they've always been. That's the only thing we can conceptualize. Jesus will give us some instruction, and then Jesus will go with us. He'll coach us through it. Then we'll have breakfast. We'll, de we'll debrief it. We'll talk about why didn't this work for us when it worked for you. We'll have a big conversation about it. But suddenly now Jesus is absent. How could following Jesus in this new context have felt anything other than completely jarring to the early disciples? Anything other than completely different, completely unfamiliar. This is unlike anything they've ever known about following Jesus. The entire time they've been following Jesus, they've been following Jesus. He's been right there. I can see him. I can touch him. I can talk to him. I can ask him questions. Early this week, friends, I was on a phone call with 30 other pastors in our network. These are other Nazarene churches in the Sacramento area. This phone call was a safe place to offer support, to ask for help. And some of these men and women who are pastoring churches in our network, they were struggling, and they were being really transparent. Somebody said, I, I don't know what to do. Somebody said, I'm having trouble getting out of bed in the morning. Uh, one pastor noted, I thought this was profound, he said, there's a lot written in scripture about sheep without a shepherd. But I can't find anything about being a shepherd without sheep. We were talking about the challenge of leading churches in a time when the church isn't gathering. So the way it's always been for us is no longer the way it is. And the common challenge of doing the work, but doing the work in a very different context, in a very different situation. And the phrase that kept emerging out of this phone call was when the church resumes or when we get back to church. And I know what they meant. I know what they meant. What they meant was 
when we gather everybody in our whole church back together in our church building. That's what they were referring to, and I know that's what they meant. But I started to grow uncomfortable with the conversation. And it wasn't really because of anything anybody else was doing. It's because in my own mind, I've been having this argument with myself. I've been debating this with myself. I've been trying to figure this out myself. I've been arguing in my own mind. When will we get back to church? And I'm receiving texts and emails almost every day from those of you in our community who are asking me this question. When are we going to get back to church? When are we going to get back to church? When's church going to resume? And I get it. I get it. We're all asking this question. Our staff is asking this question. We're working super hard on this question. We're spending a lot of time on this question. All churches are spending time on this question. And in a minute, I'm going to share some of our ideas regarding this question because it is a very important question. But here's the problem with this question. Asking when will the church resume threatens to sideline the Great Commission. It's an important question. But it is not the most important question we should be asking right now. By leading with the question, when will church resume, we could accidentally, unintentionally, put the Great Commission, Jesus' final words to us, in the same category as, say, like Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball is on hold right now indefinitely, which means there is no baseball happening And if you're a baseball fan, you got nothing to do. You're sitting around. What are you doing? You're waiting for baseball to start again. You're waiting for things to get, quote, back to normal. The problem is if we see the church like we see Major League Baseball and so many other things that have been canceled, that have been postponed, that have been suspended, that have been closed, we will end up waiting for church to resume. We will end up waiting for church to get back to normal, which would be to completely miss the point of the great commission of Christ, which is to go into all the world and make disciples. Are you you saying that the corporate gathering of Christians in the church is not essential, that it's optional? No, that is not at all what I'm saying. I believe it's critical. We need to prioritize it. We need to make it a rhythm as part of our regular lives. We are actually instructed explicitly in Hebrews not to forsake the gathering of the people, of the church, of the assembly, not to abandon the gathering of the church. But here's the distinction that I myself am battling to clarify, battling to recognize in my own mind, and battling to keep straight in my head. Here's the distinction. It is the corporate gathering of the church which is on hold not the essential work of the church that is on hold, okay? In other words, it is the large gathering that is on hold. The greater work of the church is not on hold. Large gatherings, that's what's restricted. Proclaiming and declaring the good news of Jesus Christ is not restricted. So how do you do the work of the church When you can't even go to church, okay, careful, because that sounds a lot like the disciples saying, how do you make disciples of Jesus when Jesus is not physically present anymore? Can you imagine all the Zoom calls between the early apostles after Jesus ascends to heaven? And they're like, "Uh, how how do we do this now? Can you figure out how to do this? I can't really see how we're supposed to work this out. How do you be a Christian when Christ isn't even around physically? Okay, let's be careful to ask the right questions. Let's be careful to ask the real question. The real question is not, who are we now? 
Okay, we know who we are. We're the church. That's who we are. We're the church. The real question is not what should we do now. We know what we should do. Okay? We love God. We love people. We go make disciples. It's the great commandment. Love God, love people. It's the great commission. Go make disciples. We know who we are, and we know what we're supposed to be doing. The real question, it seems to me in these days, is how? How should we do that? How do we be the church? And answering this question is really challenging because so much has changed. How do we be the church? Whether you realize it or not, you're asking this question about almost every element of your entire life right now. How should I be a friend? Right? What does that look like now? Um, how, how do I express it? How, how do we be a family now? How do we relate to our in-laws? Uh, do we go visit grandma, uh, but now she's in the hospital and we can't, so how do we be the family that she needs us to be now in this season? How do we be, the ch- how do we be a business now? Right? I've titled this sermon, How Does Fill in the Blank Work Now? That's the title of the sermon. How Does Fill in the Blank Work Now? That's the question, and it's a hard question. But it's a good question. At least I would say it's a better question than the question, when will things get back to normal? The question is, how does fill-in-the-blank work now? And it's a good question for two reasons. First, it recognizes that things have changed. And secondly, it assumes that whatever is here, whatever is filling in the blank, is critical enough that it cannot be sidelined that it must continue in some form, in some way. We can't just give it up. We can't just wait until it comes back. Okay. Can't be canceled. Whatever is here is too important to cancel. We can't cancel that. How does this, if it's a good question, we're asking it about things that are so critical, so important, we cannot just wait. Okay. It must still go on, but it's going to work differently than it did before. That much is clear. Asking, when will my home life Get back to normal is an understandable question. I just don't think it's a very productive question right now. I just don't think it's very helpful. A better question is, how does home life work now? A better question is, how does earning a living work now? Let's just get get up on top of that, okay? Okay. How, how does my children's learning experience work now? Oh, this is broken. It's not work. I, how does the learning experience work now? Okay. How does it work now? How does being the church work now? I'm terrible at math. Raise your hand if you're good at math. <laughs> Raise your hand if you like math. Okay, both my hands are down. Thoroughly, completely down. I'm going to try to summarize what I'm saying so far because I can tell you math people are already losing me. So I'm going to try to summarize what I'm saying so far as a math equation. Okay, here's the math equation. It's a word problem. Forty days after rising from the dead, Jesus gives his disciples the great commission, go make, my, go make disciples. Then in 2020, there's a pandemic. I might have skipped a few things in there. Okay, so now the whole world is asking how does... This work now. So here's the equation. Great commission plus pandemic equals <laughs> what? Right. Now, this, finding the solution to this problem is challenging, clearly. 
challenging for a couple reasons. The first is this. Most people are assuming that you find the solution to this problem by erasing pandemic. Just, just subtract it out. Just delete it. Just vaccinate against it, end it, cure it, whatever it takes. Make it stop. Just get it away from here. Go back to the way it was. That is the assumption. And I appreciate, I appreciate that perspective because I liked the way it was. We built a lot of things around the way it was. We were building more things about around the way it was. We were really excited about some of those things. But the assumption that we can just get back to the way it was may not be a reliable assumption. You might not be able to subtract this out of the equation. The second reason it's difficult to answer the question, how does fill in the blank work now, is because nobody knows. Nobody knows. Nobody knows for sure. We're spending a whole lot of time wondering and talking. So, given you can't just erase pandemic, and given none of us knows what tomorrow brings, okay, none of us knows, here is some of what we're thinking at Emmaus about how to be the church in this season, about how the work of the church works now and in this season, okay? Three ideas. First, we're thinking small, not big. Okay, the American church has been infatuated with big, especially big church gatherings for a long time. And that's what's currently restricted. That's what's restricted. Big gatherings, assembling large groups of people. Friends, a lot of what we do in large groups, we can do in small groups, right? We can worship in small groups, We can read the Bible and study scripture in small groups. We can proclaim that Jesus is Lord in small groups. We can share communion in small groups. We can pray for one another in small groups. We can meet one another's needs in small groups. We can share meals in small groups. We can care for each other in small groups. As the quarantine begins to loosen, and it is loosening, what an amazing opportunity for us to gather with maybe one other family in our home or maybe two or three other friends. We get together in the backyard, and we do the essential work of the church. We read scripture. We celebrate together in word and in sacrament. We love God. We love people, and we make disciples. Rather than losing our ever-living minds trying to answer the question, when will, we get, when, will we, when will we get back together as a large, whole community, we're thinking about the beautiful possibilities of things that can happen in small ones. Okay? We're thinking small right now, not big. Secondly, we're thinking homes, not just theater. Based on the Placer County guidance that's being given, that's one thing, one factor, and based on this really wide range of perception. I don't know if you've noticed, but people have a variety of opinions about when it will be safe to do what. Based on the Placer County's guidance and the wide range of opinions that people feel about the, the safety of public gatherings, we will almost certainly not jump right back into large Sunday gatherings with several hundred people in one space. We're working on scenarios that would allow us to gather for worship in a few homes and large yards all around the region and in smaller gatherings throughout a Sunday here at the theater. It's just really exciting, and it's exciting in this, for this reason, at least for me. It's exciting to see the hand of God leading us in our planning and in our vision. It's exciting to see God going before us. Friends, we just launched 13 
locally based home groups. 13. Okay. We just, we're in week three of the way of life catechism. We can imagine these small groups moving from Zoom meetings to physical meetings in homes and forming the foundation of a series or a collection of home churches, at least as we transition through a season. When I think about how church in Northern California can feel like a show, it can feel like a performance, I actually get really excited about the authenticity of a few families gathering together on a Sunday morning for the specific purpose of worshiping Jesus together. Because as families, we've decided to orient our entire lives around the lordship of Jesus. And so we're going to come together and we're going to sing a hymn and we're going to read the Bible and we're going to share communion and we're going to pray for each other. And that is going to be a revolutionarily authentic experience for people on a level that I don't think some of us have ever experienced, right? A realness, a rawness, an authenticity about the whole thing. Friends, there is a rich history of Christians responding to times of adversity by gathering for church in homes, and it goes all the way back to the earliest Christian writings that we have. We read in the church about the, or in the Bible, about the church that met in the house of Priscilla and Aquila, Romans chapter 16. We meet about the church that met in Nymphus's house in Colossians 4. In um, Acts chapter 2, we read about the earliest followers of Jesus who are meeting in homes to break bread as they go house to house. We're thinking homes. Not just theater, especially as part of a gradual transition in the near future. And finally, we're thinking everyone, not just some. Everyone, not some. One of the unintended and unfortunate ramifications of having professional clergy is how quick we have become as a culture to go to the professionals for spiritual food, to go to the professionals to teach me the Bible, to go to the professionals to teach my kids about Jesus. In the New Testament cultural context, I'm talking about the way it was for the earliest Christians when the Bible was written. Man, the Jewish professional clergy was elevated to a level of remarkable importance. It was inflated. Nobody could speak for God except the pros. And in that cultural context, Peter introduces a radical concept that we know as the priesthood of all believers. Peter writes this in his first letter. He says, but you, and it's a plural uh, noun, all of you, you are a chosen people. You are, he says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into the wonderful light. You have his story in you. You've learned about his love and affection for you. You can tell the truth about it. You can show people how to be a disciple of Jesus. You can do it. I believe in full-time ministers. I'm pro full-time ministers, okay? I believe in the value of that. However, this season has revealed the importance of spiritual leadership in the home. It's not so easy to outsource the spiritual instruction of our kids in this season, is it? No. We, we need to take care of this at home. It's been a difficult reality for some people to handle, but it's also been a beautiful opportunity that some are kind of picking up on. Parents are reading the Bible to their kids. Family members are serving communion to each other. People are actually responding in their homes to the invitation to confess sins to one another, to ask for forgiveness from one another. 
Several parents have shared powerful stories of stepping up to provide spiritual guidance for their children in this season. And for some, it's the first time they've ever done this. Because they are realizing if it's going to happen, it's got to be me, right? And I hope they're realizing, I hope many of us are realizing, I can do this. (laughs) I can do this. I can read the Bible to my kids. I can tell them about when I started following Jesus. I can tell them about how I worship Jesus, and sometimes I, sometimes, I'm double my, sometimes I think like doubtful thoughts, and I have these kind of questions that don't make sense to me, but, but I, I still follow Jesus, and, and this is why I do. Providing spiritual guidance for your kids, for too many of us, for too long, has basically meant you bring them to church, and it ended there for many of us. That's been an over-reliance on the professionals to do the critical work of training our kids in the faith. We're thinking, how can we equip everyone, not just some, to fulfill Christ's great commission? Okay? We got over 100 people, almost 130 people, who are learning the essential truths of the faith through the way of life. We are equipping one another to learn and then to live out what it means to be Christ, to be Christ's church. Several of us have admitted um, to one another, and several of you have said to me, I'm not sure I want it to go back to normal. If normal means the family is separated all evening long, we have dinner in the van, and we're taking kids to six different soccer practices. Because eating dinner together has become a thing again for our family. The table has become a sacred place maybe for the first time in our family. We are recognizing we all have critical roles to play in our family. This kid isn't just the best soccer player on the team. He's also remarkably good at helping in the kitchen or uh, being a mentor to his brother. We're seeing one another more fully than we have before because we're with each other all the time. Friends, despite the significant challenges of the last two months, we are seeing really strong signs of health and growth in Emmaus Church community, even in a season when we're not even meeting as a church in a large group anymore. And we don't have exact dates, and we don't have a precise plan yet. I wish we did, but here's what we're thinking. We're thinking small, not big. We're thinking homes, not just the theater. And we're thinking that everyone plays an essential role not just some. All right, let me finish with this story. I asked you a few minutes ago to share with one another how you like your eggs, how you prefer your eggs. I was reading a book two summers ago called The Cloister Walk by a woman named Kathleen Norris, and she tells a story in her book about preparing an omelet for herself while she was on a personal retreat at a retreat house. So she's making herself an omelet, and into the kitchen walks a monk, He is also on retreat at that retreat house. She's being polite. She just says to the monk, how would you like your eggs? And he just stops. And he looks at her. And he's totally confused. And he has this very strange look on his face. And she writes in her book, it was as if I'd suggested we run off to Vegas together. He he was just completely stopped in his tracks. It's like he was confused by this simple question, how do you like your eggs? And And then she realizes the obvious. He's a monk. (laughs) Nobody ever asks him how he likes his eggs. 
Because he's a part of a community where personal preferences are not valued. They're not part of the equation. They're not elevated as super important. She writes this, to eat in a monastery is an exercise in humility. Daily, one is reminded to put communal necessity before individual preference. She continues, while consumer culture speaks only to preferences, treating even whims as needs to be granted, and the sooner the better, monastics or monks sense that this pandering to the delusion of self-importance weakens the true self and diminishes our ability to distinguish between our desires and our needs. Let me read that last part again. Monks believe that the pandering to the delusion, it's not even real, of self-importance, it weakens the true self. How does it do that? It diminishes our ability to distinguish between what I want and what I actually need. And she writes, and that is a price they're not willing to pay. Powerful. There's power in embracing a perspective on life in which personal preferences are not valued at the top level, the most important thing. There is power in embracing a way of life in which personal preferences aren't even acknowledged all of the time. Right? This is not the way I like it. This is not the way I like to do church. This is not the way I like it. This is not the way I want to do my calendar. This is not the way I want to meet with people on a computer screen. This is not the way I like my sports season. This is not the way I imagined my, my school year would go. This is not the way I like to hang out. This is not the way I like to do staff meetings. There's a lot I wish things, uh, a lot about the things that are happening right now that I wish were different. A lot of the way things are going right now is not the way I prefer them to be. This is not how I like my eggs. But there's a degree to which, and it's an important thing, there's a degree to which that doesn't matter. Okay. It doesn't matter. In this sense, I don't want to get stuck in the cycle of wishing things would get back to the way I like it and then demanding that things get back to the way I like it and until they get back to the way I like it, I'm just going to sideline myself from the great commission of the church. I cannot afford to pull myself out of the bigger game in this moment, right? What is the bigger game? Making a real impact on the world right now, whether you like the way it's going right now or not. <clears throat> I understand questions like when will it get back to normal? <clears throat> I'm simply challenging myself, and I extend this challenge to you. Recognize the difference between our personal preferences and Jesus' great commission. Okay? Let's figure out some good answers to the question, how does fill-in-the-blank work now, and let's get after it. Okay? Let's make a difference where we are. Let's pray together. Lord, we need your help today to pull ourselves out of ourselves I know that some of the things we are longing for are good and true, and we should be longing for them. And some of the things we're grieving in this season are because they are broken, and they are not the way things should be. So this emotional, like, 
backlog behind our opinions and our views right now. It's real. But then I also recognize that some of what's really bugging me right now is just because it's not the way I like it. And I pray for the ability to see the distinction between what I really need, like relationship and peace from you, and what I just kind of want in order to be more comfortable more of the time. God, help us not to get sidelined in this moment, this time, that in your wisdom you have placed us right in the middle of. God, help us to engage this moment with creative solutions and deep faithfulness and obedience to your great commission to make disciples. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.